The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we are smack dab in the middle of a year-long study of the Gospel of Mark. We're spending the whole year studying this one book of the Bible because it's one of the best places to go to meet the real historical Jesus. If you've been with us for a while, you know or you're finding out Mark is a hard-hitting and fast-paced first-person account. It's an eyewitness account to the life and ministry of Jesus. So, What we find in Mark is what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Where did Jesus go? Who was this man, Jesus? We find out all of those, the answers to all those questions in this gospel of Mark. Now, but why should we care? Over 2,000 years removed from this guy who ended up on a cross, why should we care about who Jesus is, what he taught? This is what we're going to see today. Your understanding of Jesus your comprehension of who he is, what he did, all that he was and is, will determine the direction and the destination of your life. Your understanding of Jesus. This, this is, this is I, I, I chose this word very carefully. Not your feelings of Jesus. Many of you might have warm and affectionate and bubbly feelings of Jesus, But the Jesus you have these feelings towards is not the real Jesus of the Bible. He's a figment of your imagination. So what we're going to see today is your understanding of Jesus will determine the direction and the destination of your life. So here, who you think Jesus is will determine the direction of your life and ultimately the destination of your life. What we're going to learn today is that if our understanding of Jesus is off, even if it's just slightly off, it can have a devastating effect on our life. Think about this. If you're walking with a person, 
right? You're walking with a person and that person just slightly diverges from the path. Just that's a one degree of separation, right? You're walking with a person, they, their angle goes off just a little bit. After you walk a mile, what? You're maybe a hundred feet apart, right? After you walk 10 miles, you're a mile apart. After you walk a hundred miles, you're whatever, right? 10 miles apart. Multiply that concept one degree off. Multiply that by eternity. And the end of your life or your eternity, you're eternally separated from each other. There's a huge distance. Today, we're going to see that if our understanding of Jesus is off, and especially in this one specific way that we see today, it can throw the whole course of our life off track and ultimately lead us to an eternal destination where we, as in the words of Jesus here, we lose our life, we lose our soul, and Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ will literally say to us, I'm ashamed of you. Ha! <laughs> Harsh. Ouch. And what we're going to see today is there's, we can, our life and our understanding of Jesus can just be one degree off in this specific way and lead there. And I, I would hasten to say that no one in here, right, wants to hear that from Jesus at the end of our life. I'm ashamed of you, Right? And none of us want our kids to hear that or want our neighbors to hear that or our family or our friends or our coworkers to, to say that. And this is what I mean. If, when you think of Jesus, you only get these warm fuzzies and you have no concept for what Jesus just said. Lose your soul, lose your life. I'm ashamed of you. Your idea of Jesus is a hallmark, make-believe version of Jesus. Slight deviations lead to wrong destinations especially when they're multiplied by eternity. So it's my prayer today that all of us, we would encounter the real Jesus this morning and that our lives would be forever changed. That our understanding of Jesus would change the direction of our lives and ultimately the destination of our lives. Now this book of Mark, it is structured like a mountain. For the first eight and a half chapters, we have been climbing. We've been asking. We've watched Jesus do miracle after miracle. We've seen him in many different settings. We have witnessed him heal the sick, calm the storm, multiplied bread, right? Dine with sinners and preach the gospel. And what if people said, every, nearly every single encounter with this real Jesus has left people walking away going what? Who is this? What kind of authority does this guy teach with? Where is he from? Who is this? Or when he calms the storm, what? Who is this? Who can do that? Jesus is freaking people out. And this question is, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Has been leading us up to this pinnacle where Peter now makes his profession. Right? We... Sam already preached on these first few verses, but I wanted to tag into it uh, just to get us caught up where we are. In verse 29, if you're with us, Mark chapter 8, verse 29, you can open up your Bibles, follow along with us. We go verse by verse. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one laying in the row right where you're at. We will put it on the screen, but I'd like you to follow along even in your app if you want to do that. <clears throat> so, uh, in verses 27, we see Jesus saying, who do people say that I am? We're still going up this peak. What is that? What's the consensus about me out there by and large? And by and large, what did, what did the disciples respond? They said, listen, here's what people say you are. Some say John the Baptist. We've already seen that's what Herod thought. Who, that's who Herod thought Jesus was. Uh, others say Elijah. 
Others say one of the prophets. So the consensus of people was that Jesus was a prophet from God. Now, a prophet is a man that God has chosen, that he hears the word of God. God speaks to this man divinely, and this man repeats what God says to the people. Okay? That's his office. That's what his job is. A prophet is God's mouthpiece. And the people had heard enough of Jesus' teaching that they were blown away by his authority. So they understood him. Okay, this guy's probably a prophet. That's probably what he is. But Jesus isn't satisfied with this response. So he asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am, right? That's there, right there in verse uh, 29. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, right? Peter pipes up like Peter likes to do. And Peter answers Jesus, you are the Christ. Now that word Christ means the anointed one, right? The Messiah. It's not Jesus's last name. It's the long awaited king of the Jews who would come and heal God's people and deliver them from all their enemies and even from death itself. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, he's saying, you're the anointed one. Come back to save us. Come back, deliver us from all our enemies. The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament speaks of this coming king over and over and over before Jesus is born. Listen, this is how the prophet Daniel spoke of the coming king. We, we got that scripture here. Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel says this, I, <laughs> I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God himself, and was presented before him, and to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so listen. In this moment, the Holy Spirit is giving Peter a divine revelation. God is opening up Peter's eyes. He's opening up his understanding and his comprehension of the Old Testament to see Jesus as the Messiah, as this man that's prophesied in Daniel. He is the king that will have an eternal dominion, that will rule all nations and all people. I pray that some of us would come to that same realization today, and you can't come, at, come to it by just putting pieces together. The Holy Spirit must give you the revelation, must open up your eyes to do it. But this is where things get a little dicey for Peter. And I think many for us, same, same for us. Peter's declaration was right. Peter's confession was right. But what we're going to see, his understanding of that profession was just a little bit off. Peter says, Jesus is the Christ. Absolutely. Many of us would echo Peter's confession. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But here's the problem. What Peter meant by that and what God meant by that were two separate things. And for us, some of us say, yes, Jesus is Lord. But what we mean by that and what the, how the Bible speaks of that and what God means by that are two separate things. And our understanding of the matter is important. What we see here is Peter's understanding of Jesus is just a little bit off. It's one degree of separation off from the truth. And I'll tell you, the most dangerous heresy in the world is the ones that are almost right. Okay? 
Because those are the ones that people buy into. The versions of Jesus that are really close to the original, but just one degree off. And I'll be honest, I think our culture has bought into this one degree of separation from Jesus. We think we know the real Jesus, but it's just a little bit off. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But ultimately, this one degree will make an eternal difference in the direction and the destination of a person's life. So, Peter says, in a sense, Jesus, you are the long-awaited king that's going to make everything right. And then Jesus follows up with a lesson, a theological lesson, a a how-to-interpret-the-Old-Testament lesson right here for Peter. Look at verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Whoa. Now, what what we need to see here, Jesus' favorite term for himself is son of man. Okay? He likes that term. The same exact term that we just read in Daniel chapter 7. Right? Daniel has the vision of the long-awaited Messiah, the king who will rule. David said this, like the son of man. Okay? This is a term, this is Jesus' favorite term for himself. And he's tying it back in to the Old Testament promise of a long-awaited Messiah. Jesus says, yes, Peter, you're right. I am the son of man, the long-awaited king. But then Jesus goes to, on to explain to him what that means for him to be the Messiah. And Jesus announced several things. Number one, we just see it. We see it right there. I'm going to suffer many things. Two, I'll be rejected by the Jewish religious authorities. Three, I will, I will be killed. Four, after three days, I will rise again. Now, I want you to see, this is not, Jesus is prophesying. This has not happened. Jesus is telling them very clearly what is going to happen. It's not going to be an accident that I die, that I wind up accidentally getting crucified. I am going to the cross. I will be persecuted. I will be given up by the religious authorities. I will be killed. And then ultimately, three days later, I will rise again. Now, if you've been around the church for very long, you've probably heard many of the Old Testament prophecies that refer to Jesus' suffering. We, we read one today from Isaiah, right? Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Psalm 23, Jesus quotes from the cross. All of these speak clearly about a person in the Old Testament, listen, called the suffering servant, okay? The suffering servant. Now, we're looking back on this side of the cross and the New Testament writers that wrote after the death and resurrection of Jesus clearly made those connections for us that the long-awaited Messiah and the suffering servant are actually one and the same person. Now, up until this moment, no one had this, people didn't even have this thought. They, they, They didn't have this category. In Jesus' day and age, no one was connecting these two themes of the king and the suffering servant. The rabbis of Israel understood that the Messiah was central to the Old Testament, but they did not conceive of of applying the scriptures regarding the suffering servant to the Messiah. They thought they were two separate categories. So when Peter says, you are the Messiah... You are the Christ, and Jesus affirms that by referring to himself as the Son of Man. Listen, when people, said, when people heard that, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, people thought, glory, glory, glory. The King, 
has come. Everlasting dominion. All the peoples of the earth are going to bow down and worship him. Every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. This is it. They're thinking upward into the right. Right? The growth curve. That's what they're thinking. It's going to get really good for us. The king is here. Glory, glory, glory. Things are about to get really good for us. His kingdom has come. Many times they thought, most of them thought, that the suffering servant referred to Israel itself and all the suffering that it had to go through. They had to go through as a people. But then Jesus, listen, he completely redefines for them what it means to be the Messiah, what it means for him to be the Messiah. For the first time ever, Jesus combined the category of the suffering servant from the Old Testament to the category of the promised king and the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah who will suffer. Jesus is the Messiah who will be rejected. Jesus is the Messiah who will be killed and who will be resurrected. Now what's interesting as we're looking at this, look how Jesus says it. Um, in 31 he began to teach them that the son of man look at this word right here must suffer you need to underline that you need to put a highlight around it you need to circle that must was not an option what does it mean when it says he must suffer Jesus must suffer and die in order to be the Messiah and save his people from his sin, their sins. Why is that the case? Now, there's many different reasons, but let me give you the main one. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them, you have freedom to eat from any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told them, if you eat from that tree, we're in the story of God in my missional community right now, what does he say? If you eat from the one tree that I deny you to eat from, what's going to happen? You will surely die. He's saying disobedience equals death. Disobedience is sin. That's another word for it. God set a universal law into motion right there. Ezekiel 18 says it like this. I read this in my quiet time this week. Behold, all souls are mine. That's what God says. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine the soul who sins shall die. That's what he said. So if all sin, now listen, so the Bible says all sin, because it's rebellion from God, through the creation rising up against the creator, all sin deserves death. Now here's the question that we need to ask ourselves when we come to the scriptures. If all sin deserves death, and all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone find life? How could God possibly forgive anyone and still be true to his original word about sin, right? And be just in following through with what he promised and punishing sin. This is why Jesus said he must suffer and die. Jesus was the only sinless one because he came from the Father. He didn't have sin in his bloodstream. He never sinned. He never disobeyed God. Jesus was the Son of God sent from the Father to save his people from their sins. 
Jesus' perfect life that was snuffed out on the cross was the only sufficient payment possible to save us from God's righteous wrath. Jesus had to die. It was the only one that anyone, that it's only way that anyone could be saved. I'm actually going to go somewhere really quick. I'm going to go to Psalm 49 and just read you something because sometimes I don't think we understand this. Psalm 49 says this in verses seven and eight. Listen, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. What God is saying in the psalmist here is that we can't purchase somebody else's salvation. Okay? Here, here's why. If, I, if you owe me, uh, how do I do this? If, if, if Trent owes the judge $1,000 and I owe the judge $5,000, Trent can't come to the judge and pay for my penalty because he has his own penalty, right? He, he, he owes money himself, right? He's in debt himself. Now, multiply, this is not the greatest analogy because it's right on the fly and they're never good when they're right on the fly. Sorry. But multiply that by eternity. We walk to the judgment seat of God. We walk before his throne and I'm guilty of sin. And my brother is guilty of sin. So I can't give my life for a ransom for him. I can't purchase because I owe my own debt. I owe my own debt of sin, right? We're, we're all debtors before God. But then in Psalm 49, in verse 15, this is what God says. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the power of hell. But God will ransom my soul. No man can save another man because we all owe the debt ourselves, but God himself can ransom. He can pay the debt because Jesus Christ, the son of God, doesn't owe God anything because Jesus is free of sin. So this is how God can forgive us and give us grace and mercy while at the same time being true to his word and punishing all sins. He punishes Jesus in our place. But Jesus goes on to say, in verse 32, and he said this plainly. He's not talking in parables anymore. He's talking very clear. This is where we want Jesus to have parables. I'm just going to tell you. When we're getting down to this stuff, we're like, hmm, I don't understand it. It's just so deep and complex. Give me some ambiguity so I can wiggle my way out of what he's about to say. And Jesus says, not now. Now I'm going to speak really plainly. And this is what it means. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now Jesus isn't talking in codes. He's not talking in parables. He spoke this plainly. I'm the Messiah, but I'm the Messiah who will suffer and die at the hands of sinful men. Specifically, the Jewish leaders. But Peter wouldn't have it. Peter says, no way. My cate- I, that's a category mistake for me. The Messiah can't die. The Messiah is the everlasting king, right? He couldn't make the connection, the suffering servant and the Messiah. No way. I'm going to do everything possible to stop this from happening, Jesus. 
The Messiah can't die. The Messiah can't suffer. He's going to be an all-glorious and powerful king. How could that all-powerful and all-glorious king who will rule and reign over all the kingdoms of the earth in an everlasting dominion, how could that king die at the hands of sinful men? Category mistake. Doesn't make sense. No, Jesus. And, And Peter doesn't just go, hmm, this is difficult to understand. Professor, could you explain that to me? Peter rebukes him. The same word Jesus uses when he speaks to the devil and he speaks to demons. It's Peter saying to Jesus, you're way off, no way, you're wrong, I'm opposing you. Messiah plus cross, no way. Then Jesus responds, Well, okay, whatever you want, Peter. If that's true for you, then that's true for you. Whatever your truth is, whoever you need me to be, because I am your personal therapist, I'm there for you. That's not how Peter responds, or that's not how Jesus responds to Peter. Look how Jesus responds. But turning... And seeing his disciples. First off, why? One man's confession isn't just about that one man. Okay? There's disciples watching. Probably hundreds of followers watching. This one man's confession, the world is watching. How will you respond to Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Peter, he's the Christ. You're right, I'm the Christ and I'm going to the cross. No way! Christ was crossed. And Jesus, because people are watching. The world is watching. Jesus says, get, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So now Jesus says, oh, you're going to rebuke me? I'll rebuke you. Same word I use for casting out demons. And Jesus takes it one step up and says, what? Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. For Jesus, this was not a trivial issue. Peter's understanding of Jesus, one could say, was only slightly off. But that deviation made all the difference in the world. For Peter, listen, Jesus was the Messiah of glory. But he wasn't the Messiah of the cross. Peter wanted a king with a crown and a scepter and a glorious robe. He didn't want a king with a cross. He didn't want a king with a cross and a tomb and a bloody beaten body. He wanted a king who ruled the world in power, not one crucified in weakness. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And this is where we see something immensely important about the way of Jesus. He says to Peter, the reason you misunderstand me is because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is Jesus saying? Peter, like Satan and every other human being that has ever been born of a woman, listen, we're born with a theology of glory. What does that mean? What's a theology of glory? This is the natural man and the natural woman's way of viewing the world. 
You, may, you, might, you probably never thought of this before. To put it very simply, a theology of glory says that what mankind needs most is just a little bit of help. And with a little bit of help and some positive thinking and some good hard effort on our part, we are destined for greatness in this life. Without knowing it, Peter had the same theology. When Peter rebukes Jesus, he's opposing his only, the only hope for salvation. He's opposing it, Jesus, the crucified Savior. Peter's opposing the only hope for salvation. Why? Because he can't get his head around the cross. Why does, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Because this is the same temptation that Satan offered Jesus in the desert. I'll give you a kingdom with no cross. I'll give you power and authority and glory with no suffering. Don't listen to God. Don't take God's way to, you know, persecution and suffering in the cross. Take my way and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth with no cross. And Jesus resisted him perfectly there. And now when he sees that same theology in the heart of his, one of his closest disciples, he rebukes it for what it is and says, that is Satan speaking. It's a theology of glory. A theology of glory diminishes our depravity. Come on, Justin. We're not really that bad. Come on, we're enlightened. We know that we're, we're good people at heart. We're good people down deep. We just need a little bit of help and a little bit of discipline and a little bit of good teaching, a little bit of instruction, and we're on our way to glory. The, a theology of glory diminishes our depravity and it devalues God's glory. It says, we're not so bad that the only way we could be saved is for Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sins. But at the same time, it also says, give me a break. God isn't so holy that he would actually demand justice. If you, if you have a, you know, modern, maybe late modern mind, I think, you know, I, I do for the most part, we, most of us do in this part, we kind of think every sin deserves death. That's obnoxious. Why? Because we devalue the glory of God. We don't see him as eternally great in anything against his character and anything against his rule and his power should be snuffed out immediately. A theology of glory elevates us, you know, it lifts us out of our depravity and it devalues God's glory. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the cross is so offensive to us. How dare you say I'm depraved, that I have a sinful heart, that if everything about me is bent in sin, am I as bad as I could be? No, that's not what the Bible says. The common grace of God restrains evil, but it's there. It's lurking in the dark corners of our heart. And this is what I meant when I said before, your understanding of Jesus will determine the direction and the destination of your life. The, one of the commentaries I read this week in the pillar commentary said this, a wrong view of messiahship will lead to a wrong view of discipleship. A wrong view of messiahship will lead to a wrong view of discipleship. If you have a theology of glory, 
And nobody wears the t-shirt, right? Like nobody's like, I got a theology of glory and you wear the t-shirt. You don't even know it because many times it's just, it's one degree off and it's masked. This is what it, a theology of glory thinks that, you know what, Jesus, he was a really good guy. He was a great teacher. Um, but all he really did for us was kind of help us out a little bit. He kind of gave us a boost, gave us a great example to follow. And now he says, do things like me. And I'm going to help you out a little bit on the way. And I'm going to give you a nice, pleasant family or a nice, comfortable job and a comfortable career. I'm going to make you really well-rounded so you'll never offend anyone on Facebook. You'll be completely milquetoast, okay? You'll just be, you never offend anybody. You'll be middle of the road, middle-class American. That's what Jesus is going to do for you. He's here to give you a little positive self-esteem boost to improve your life a little bit, help you with your kids, right? Listen, if that's you, this is, this is one of the ways that we need to check ourselves. How, how would I know if that's me? Look at your life. A true disciple of Jesus, their life is going to look like Jesus. But if your idea of Jesus, your understanding of Jesus is a little bit off, your lifestyle is going to be a little bit off of Jesus as well. And ultimately, let's just put this together. If my lifestyle is incongruent with Jesus and it's off, especially in this way, my destination is going to be off as well. A theology of glory thinks our life should be all growth patterns, right? Up and to the right. We should be getting more and more comfortable here on this earth. We should be getting more and more influential at work and in our careers. We should be getting more and more successful and wealthy. The church should be constantly growing. That theology is from Satan. I'm not saying it. Jesus says it. It's from the sinful mind of man that we're born with a theology of glory. We even tell our kids this. You can be anything you want. Put your mind to it. Dedicate your life to Christ and he'll help you accomplish it. It's the biggest lie we've ever told our kids. Okay? No matter how much I worked, I could never be a defensive lineman for the Chicago Bears. Never. I'm not made for it. My body's not made for it. I would last one play. And a defensive lineman for the Chicago Bears, he didn't make himself into that either. He wasn't forming himself in his mother's womb. I'm going to be really large and athletic. Make it happen. God did it. The theology of glory is from the sinful mind of man. Guys, do we get this? Up and to the right, everything's going to get better. Everything's going to get easier. Peter had the same theology and Jesus rebuked him. But what's the opposite? The opposite is called the theology of the cross. And Martin Luther in 1518, he wrote his disputation. It's called the Heidelberg Disputation. And he wrote it to Rome. And it was in the late medieval times. And the Roman Catholic Church had 
uh, ex- was experiencing a great decline. And listen, this is interesting. If you know anything, you're in here today partly because of Martin Luther, all right? We're a Protestant congregation right here. Um, you're partly, if you're not specifically Roman Catholic, it's partly because of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, many people talk about his, uh, his 95, 95th thesis and nailing it on the Wittenberg door, but actually what was more important than his 95th thesis was his 1518 Heidelberg Disputation. And in it, this is what he said. He opposed what he said the Catholic Church was teaching, a theology of glory. And he said, Christ came to give us the theology of the cross. And listen, this is what the Catholic Church was doing. At the time, many of you know this, they were selling, one of the things they were doing, they were selling what's called indulgences, right? Literally, uh, their little slogan, if I can remember all right, was every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So they were saying, they were trying to build their uh, cathedrals, and they were saying, if you give to the church financially, you can pull people out of purgatory, Okay? And in the same theology, they were saying, by your good works, you can earn your salvation. Right? You can earn your salvation. And Martin Luther called that a theology of glory. Why? Because they're denying their own depravity. They're denying how bad off and how sinful we actually are. And they're saying, just drop some money in the plate. Just try a little harder. Just come to the priest and confess your sins more often. And, they're, and it's a theology of glory. It's elevating man, and it's devaluing God, and Martin Luther opposed it by saying this, the cross alone is our theology. And in that, he means the cross and resurrection. So don't just think like just the cross, the cross and the resurrection. And look at verse 34. Look at, I think this is part, this is part of the, part of the place that Luther gets this theology. And let me just say this while I'm going on there. How late am I right now? Okay, I'm, I'm good. We have that same theology in our city right now. You can go to churches all across the city and you can hear. You don't, they're not going to say every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. They're, but they're going to say the amount that you give is going to be multiplied back to you. And the more you give and the more that you will receive. And if you give more money, God will bless you and he'll make you comfortable and he'll make you wealthy and he'll bless your children. It's the same thing. It's a theology of glory. It's the same thing. Now let's read here. Verse 34. After clearing up their idea of who Jesus is, Jesus says, I'm the Messiah who came to die. I'm the Messiah with a cross. That's what he says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, That means if anyone's going to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the first mention we have of the cross. And for us, we read the cross and we're like, oh, the cross. Today we sang, listen, the song we sang today would be the most obnoxious song in the world. Absolutely ridiculous if we sang it to Peter at this time right now. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. We wear the cross around our our neck, right? We got cross tattoos on our arm. We wear cross t-shirts. Even our rock stars have crosses hanging from their neck. But in this time, right, the cross was the most gruesome, most disgusting, 
symbol the world had to offer. 500 years before this time, um, the Persians invented this cross, this crucifixion. They would strip people naked and nail them to a cross. And it's been said that in 500 years, you know, the, the Persians invented it. But by 500 years later, the Romans perfected it. They knew how to get the most pain possible. They didn't want to just kill somebody, cut their throat, cut their head off. No, they wanted to inflict pain. So much pain that a word has been invented because of the cross. It's called excruciating. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. The cross was so disgusting and so debilitating that we literally had to invent a word to describe it. Most of the time it was reserved for men. Occasionally women were crucified. And most of the time when women were crucified, they were turned to face the cross because people couldn't stand to see that much pain on the face of a woman. They would be nailed there for days or strung up there for days. And what killed them was usually asphyxiation. They couldn't support the weight with their legs anymore. Why did they give them that nice little stool, that nice little thing to sit on? Oh, that's so kind of those Romans to give them something to rest on. No, they did that to prolong the death. They didn't want a person just to slide off and die within hours. They wanted him to hang there and suffer and be ridiculed and mocked. Sometimes they even lowered the cross down to eye level so people could hit them and smack them and look them in the face as they died. And it wasn't done off in some dark alley in some corner of the city, but it was elevated on top of the hill. It was the spectacle that everyone came by and watched. It was gruesome. It was barbaric. Early first century um, historian Josephus said it was the most heinous of deaths that a Roman citizen and a Jew should not even speak of it, shouldn't even cross his, ma- cross his lips to talk about the cross. It wasn't, it wasn't fit for civilized conversation. Think about it. How do we kill people today? We, we inject them or we, I don't know if we still do the electric chair or not, but it's like at the time of, the, it's like walking around with a little electric chair around your neck. Or a little injection needle around your neck. That's how Peter would look at us with our crosses around our neck. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, see, I'm the Christ who came with the cross. I'm a Christ. I'm the Christ that came with suffering. And for anyone who's going to follow me, it's going to come with a cross. And they didn't have this glamorized version. Oh, you mean I got to get a tattoo? I got to start wearing Jesus shirts? No, the most heinous of all deaths could be awaiting you. Listen, this one degree of separation from the real Jesus has got our culture, our society, our church in desperate straits. It's been my experience. The majority of churches are teaching Christ with no cross. You want Christ? Pray a prayer. Pray a prayer. And then whatever. How ridiculous is that? Do we need to confess our sins and repent of our sins and embrace Christ by faith? And we do that in prayer. Absolutely. But we follow Jesus. And we take up our cross and we deny ourselves, Americans. Wow. Deny yourself? 
Jesus is saying, there is no Christianity without discipleship. There is none. It's it's make-believe. It's a pipe dream. It's a lie. There is no embrace Jesus and move on with your life. That's a theology of glory. The theology of the cross is we embrace Christ and we're in it now. We deny ourselves. We pick up our cross and we carry it. And what does that look like? What does it look like to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus in a life of discipleship? Jesus, thankfully, still speaking very plainly, is going to describe it for us. And he does that uh, in 35 through 38. And what you're going to see is you're going to see four, look at me, F-O-U-R, four fours, F-O-R. Okay? So Jesus is going to say, here's what Christianity looks like. Embrace Christ. Follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow me where, by the way? Follow me to death. Follow me to my cross. Right? And then he's going to, that four is basically saying, therefore, 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 therefore. So here's his four points. Here's Jesus' four-point sermon here. Okay? You could circle that little, all those little fours. Here's what it looks like. One, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Uh, Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, what a paradox, right? You want to save your life? Lose it. You want to lose your life? Try to save it. Now, what's going on here? This is different. Most of you, if you have an ESV, you've probably got a little letter by that word life. And if you go down and you look, why do you have that little letter? Because this is, he, he, the writer here is using a different word for life. He's using the Greek word. Um, let me look at it. Let me, let me see if I can say it. I think it's just called psyche, but let me make sure. Yeah, psyche. This is where we get our, ter- our word psychology from, right? It's the Greek word for life or soul or personality or your identity. What is that? It's the things that make you unique from other people. So he's, and it's usually what we kind of base our life on, right? It's what we base our identity on. Like, I'm an introvert, or I'm an extrovert, or I'm a carpenter, or I'm, I'm a banker, or I'm a businessman, or I'm a home, it's, or I'm wealthy, or I'm not, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat. It's these things that we kind of base our life on. And Jesus is making it very clear here. He's saying everything that you are, your life, your soul, your personality, your identity, everything must be given up to Jesus Christ and the gospel. See, a theology of glory says you just need a little bit of help to become a pretty good person and then God is into pretty good people so he'll accept you because you're better than average. That's what a theology of glory says. All you need is a little church going. All you need is a little bit of Bible reading. All you need is a little theology or a little morality and God will accept you because he's a pretty good guy and he likes pretty good people. It's a theology of glory. That's religion. Jesus says, no, you are so bad. The only thing that will save you is a cross. Your body of flesh is so infected by sin. The only thing that will fix it is death itself and resurrection. That's how bad we are in ourselves. That's our condition. 
You have to lose your life. You have to give up all your other ways of trying to build an identity for yourself. And you have to be crucified with Christ in order to be raised with him. What does that mean? Listen, this is, this is part of the beauty of the gospel. When we go to Christ, we give up every other crutch that we have. Every other way that we try to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, we give it up and we confess that we're sinners. We, we confess, we look at the cross. Please, for those of you who argue when people confront you in your sin, right? Like me, right? Those of you who like, you want to get out of it. What are you doing? Why are you so offended that somebody sees sin in you? Why are you fighting to try to prove your righteousness? The cross has already outed you. You're a sinner that nothing could save. You're so bad, God's son had to die for you. But here's the flip side of that. When you get that, I'm so bad. The only way to make me right with God was the perfect man. The God man had to take my place on the cross and die for me. When you get that, the flip side of it is, I'm so loved. He sees me at my worst. And I'm so loved that he came and he bled and he died for me. And what does it do? It gives me a brand new identity. There's many different ways the scriptures talk about it. We're adopted into a new family. Those who give up their life, get it. Those who, Jesus already said, those who give up their earthly families, get new families in the church. Right? Those who lose houses in this world, get more houses because they're a part of community and now they have multiple houses to go through, go to. Those who give up their resources, get resources blessed to them. Those who give up their identities, get a new identity returned to them. And this is the identity of Christ, an unsinkable identity. We say around Sacred City that God's given us four. This is part of our philosophy. We're family. We've already talked about it. Our identity in Christ, we're a family. He's our father. Jesus is our older brother. We're brothers and sisters. We're missionaries. God has sent us on the same mission that the disciples were on to go make Jesus famous in our city. We are servants. Nobody likes that one. Listen, being a servant is the exact opposite of a theology of glory. You know you have a theology of glory when you go and serve, but then when somebody treats you like a servant, you get offended. Because there's this way that our society right now, we all want to save the world. We all want to volunteer. We all want to do things. But as soon as it gets uncomfortable, as soon as it pushes in just a little bit too much on my style or my lifestyle, I pull back. I back away. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you and give my life as a ransom for many. And we are servants. And then lastly, that we say we're learners. Lifelong learners. Our, part of our identity that Christ has been given us is to be men and women who go back to the scriptures every single day and say, God, show me my wickedness and show me your goodness and show me your graciousness and show me what you've promised for me in the new heavens and the new earth. Show me how to fight my sin. Show me how to worship you. Show me how to lead others to Christ. God, show me and this is where I'm going to find it. We're learners. Now, it might be easy for us to kind of hear those words of Jesus. Okay, anyone who 
tries to save his life, loses anybody, tries, anyone who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's, that's kind of theoretical. And many of us can do some gymnastics in our head and go, yeah, that's me. I think I'm doing that. I am here, by the way. Right? But Jesus doesn't let it stay merely theoretical. He's going to give us three more points that I think are going to make it really, really personal. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus right here in these two verses is showing something that we struggle to build our identities on, right? Some of us equate life, our life, with this. And what is this? This is a lesson here in divine economics. Jesus is saying, because we have a theology of glory, we tend as human beings to define ourselves through our possessions, through our money, through our vacations, right? Through our clothes, our vehicles, our houses, our yards. And Jesus is really saying how ridiculous and obnoxious that is. For what could a man give to gain his soul? He's putting everything the world has to offer, the whole universe, he's putting it on the scale, and then he's putting one, our own soul on the other side of the scale, and it goes like this. Our souls, eternal life, is the most valuable thing we could possibly look for in this life. And there's nothing we can do to trade it. There's nothing we can do. Our money doesn't increase our eternal life. Our house doesn't increase our eternal life. It doesn't profit a man anything to gain the whole world. Now, I just want you to pause and just think about that. Because right now, if you assessed your life, is your life, let's look at the path you're on. Is your life saying to you, saying to your family, saying to your neighbors and saying to the world, my life is found in my possessions. It's what I think about. It's what I meditate on. It's what I get angry about when somebody takes something from me that they don't deserve. You're living your life like happiness and joy and satisfaction and eternal life is found in your possessions or your degrees, or your success, whatever, whatever it is. Are you living like that? Or your kids, or your wife. Jesus says, it won't profit you anything eternally. Money. Listen to this, I'm gonna say membership. We're, we're doing membership around here. I had people, I've had people come into my office for membership interviews, go through the whole membership process and say, Justin, yes, we're on board with Sacred City. 
God has saved us. God has brought us into his family. We're really excited to be on mission with you guys. Just one problem as we're leaving here real quick. Um, we're not going to give any money to the church. And theology of glory. And I, I had to say, then, then you're not going to be members. Like you're th- Why? Why would I be so harsh and say that? You mean you have to give money to be a part? No, no, it's not like that. When, I, when we say, yes, you're members, we're confirming and affirming that we believe you are saved. That, you've ha- that you see Jesus in all his glory and you've turned from his sin. And when you say, oh, I, I, just, I, I couldn't give any money to the church, you're ultimately saying you don't see Jesus as glorious. Because people who see Jesus as all glorious, when they want to give their resources, they want to give it away, right? And how backwards it is for us to think, I'm going to come to Christ who gave it all for me? I'm going to keep my wallet right here. It has been said that those in the Crusades, some men that were in the Crusades, they would be baptized with their, holding their sword out of water. Saying, I want to give my life to Jesus, but not my sword. I think many of us today, we get baptized with our wallets out of the water. I'll give my life to Christ, but not, not my wallet. That's me. If, 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 listen, if you have a theology of glory, you, you won't last long here at Sacred City. And, and I love you, and I, I want to see your theology of glory change into a theology of the cross, and we want to accept you, we want to welcome you, but we're not, we're not changing. We're not changing God's scripture, God's word. We're not going to deviate from it. I don't care what big pastor comes out and changes his theology and bends with the culture, we're not going to do it here. If we're 10, if there's 10 of us tomorrow, there's 10 of us tomorrow, and I'm getting another job, <laughs> right? Then that's going to happen. Look at the path you're on right now. Are you on the path of discipleship? Are you following Jesus and denying yourself? Or are you like the rest of the world trying to define yourself by your stuff? And for some of us, we're, maybe, maybe there's a few of us in here that aren't really into stuff. Look what Jesus uses for the next illustration. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me. That word ashamed, it just means embarrassed. Right? Who's embarrassed of me? For whoever is ashamed of me and and of my words. In this what? Adulterous and sinful generation. That's Jesus. Listen, Jesus is, right, First century, he's looking around, and this is his depiction. This is an adulterous and sinful generation. I'd say, Jesus, bro, we're living in the adulterous and sinful generation. I think we, we get dibs on this, right? But Jesus says, no. He looks around, he goes, it's adulterous. They're chasing after other gods. They're chasing after lo- other loves. And he says this, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of what he says, about humanity, what he says about marriage, what he says about life and death and the resurrection and morality, what he says about discipleship. Are we ashamed of that? He says, if you are of him, will the son of man, when Jesus is the king of the universe, when he's sitting on his throne and we stand before him after our death, I'll also be ashamed. 
the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about our reputations. It's not popular to the hold to the teachings of Jesus. You know who, we all know, we, we see this right here. Who, who did Jesus say killed him? Jesus says here, we ultimately know that the Father did it because the Father orchestrated all things. But right here in this text, Jesus says who? Who did it? It was uh, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. You know who that is? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the worst of the worst that killed Jesus. It was the best of the best. It wasn't the worst of humanity that crucified the Savior. It was the best of humanity that killed him. To follow Jesus, it's just going to look, we're going to look like absolute fools to those who are in power. It's always been that way. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, we, we tried to, you know, in our culture, we, we thought we had power and we thought we were doing something in, in politics. Except it's, it's never really been like that. We're always subversive. Our world doesn't really care if you get a little religious. Your friends don't care if you get a religious. Oh, great. It's going to help you out. You'll be a little more positive. It's good. Whatever works for you. But once you really start to follow Jesus, they're going to freak out. Your coworkers will freak out. Your boss will freak out. Your neighbors will freak out. Your family will freak out. You mean you go to church every Sunday? You gather with people every Sunday? When do you golf? Your devotion to Jesus will convict them. What do you mean you can't work late tonight because you're gathering with your missional community? Your faith is more important to you than more money or your boss's approval? See, the kingdom is subversive to the kingdoms of the world. We crave. We, when we post something on Facebook, you know, Facebook has likes and comments. They don't have dislikes, right? Why? Because we, we don't want to get disliked, 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 right? We want to build up our ego and build up our glory. We want people to think well of us. We want our boss to think well of us and our neighbors to think well of us. And Jesus is saying here that following him is going to bring shame to us. And it's not talking about like a moment of embarrassment where like you didn't know how to share your faith and you wimped out or something. It's talking about a life of on that direction of being ashamed of what Jesus taught, of who Jesus is and what Jesus said. If you follow Jesus, as I'm closing, if you follow Jesus, your life's priorities will look like Jesus. Gospel, community, mission. You're going to live in a tight-knit community like Jesus did with his apostles. You're going to be preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel with one another. You're going to be eating meals with people, unbelievers, insiders, outsiders. You're going to be on mission, sharing your faith, watching people come to faith, baptizing your neighbors and your brothers and sisters and your friends. You're going to be living this type of discipleship devoted to the word of God. And I'm going to say to you this morning, if you could assess yourself right now and you look at your life, does that, is that what your life looks like? And if it doesn't, let's be honest. A, you're either not following Jesus. And if you're in here and you're not following Jesus, we want to offer you, come follow him with us. Like, it, it, it is difficult. 
following Christ. It is difficult denying ourselves, denying our desires sometimes. It's difficult living in community with one another. It's difficult to follow Jesus and understand his ways all the time. But listen, it's difficult. You're right. But when Christ comes back in all glory with all the angels, everything we've ever given up, we're going to be completely justified, right? We're going to be completely, it's going to be worth it in the new heavens and the new earth, right? And for all of us who seek our own comfort in this earth, we're going to be ashamed in the new heavens and the new earth. Christ says, I will be ashamed of you. That's scary. If you follow Jesus, your life priority is going to look like Jesus. So maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, or secondly, maybe you're immature, you're just coming to faith, so your life doesn't really look like this. We're gonna invite you, come into our missional communities, come into our church, come into membership, follow Jesus with us. Or secondly, maybe you've, you've confessed Jesus with your mouth, but you didn't really understand the gospel. You didn't really understand what he did for us when he came to the cross and he died. A sinless man, the God, the Son of God, died on the cross. You don't, re- you don't really understand it, and you don't see the implications that when He paid that eternal price for us, our only appropriate response is worship and giving our entire life back to Him. It's the only appropriate response. For far too long, we've chosen churches based on which ones made us feel good or which ones met our current felt needs as a family or which ones offered the widest array of programming and didn't bother my agenda too much. Why do we do that? I think it's because we are searching for a version of Christianity that is less demanding than the original. We want Christianity with no cross to bear. And Jesus says, that is the way of man and it comes from Satan. There is a cost to discipleship. Christians serve a king who was crucified. He was executed in weakness, but resurrected in power. Our lives should not make sense to the people of this world. Shouldn't make sense. They will only make sense when Jesus returns in glory. What can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. We could give everything. Listen, I hope you don't hear me saying, carry your cross and earn your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Christ earned and purchased your salvation. So now we pick it up and we carry it with him because he is our crucified savior and we're following him because of what he's done for us. It's empowered us to carry our cross with him. We could give everything and still wouldn't be enough. But Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the sinless, spotless King of the universe, he left heaven, he left glory, he left power to come and suffer and die and be buried and be resurrected in glory for us. And he ransomed us with the only thing in the universe that could, the very blood of the Son of God. Father, I pray this morning that those of us who don't know you, we put our faith in you, we believe you, we trust you. That Jesus was the Son of God, he came and lived a perfect life, and he died the death that we all deserve to placate your wrath, to divert your wrath onto himself and away from us so that you could justify us saying, they are forever clean, they are forever 
not guilty because of Jesus paid our price. But Father, you also sent your Holy Spirit to empower us for mission, to empower us to fight our sin, be sanctified as we follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow you. For those of, in, those of us in here who are tempted to give up, we're tempted to tap out. It's tough. Nobody likes to be um, ridiculed for their faith. Nobody likes to be um, turned away from, from friends. Nobody likes to be labeled and name-called. Nobody enjoys sacrifice. But Father, you've called us to it because you did it for us. I pray that, that we would see Jesus on the cross doing everything for us. And then out of that, our lives would be motivated to respond in turn, to lay our lives down for those that you've put in our circle, our family, our friends, our church, our missional communities, our neighbors. Would you do this for your glory and for our ultimate good, Father? As we come as Christians, come to this table. This isn't just a cultural celebration, a nice little thing we do on Sunday. We're coming to the broken body of the Son of God and the shed blood of the Son of God that reminds us we're this bad that God had to die for us, but we're this loved that Jesus willingly came and died for us. Father, brand that on our soul this morning. Stir our affections to worship the God who would go to such lengths to rescue sinners like us. We are privileged. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.